0: Pushkin. Hello, hello, podcast listeners. Malcolm Gladwell here. As you know, I'm the president of Pushkin Industries. What you might not know is that I've been a fan of Paul Simon since I was a wee little Malcolm. And recently, I sat down with Paul Simon and my oldest friend and the co-host of the Broken Record podcast, Bruce Headlam, to create a new audiobook, Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon. Miracle and Wonder is the product of 30 hours of sessions with one of the greatest songwriters in music history. We talked about his life growing up in Queens, his influences, and the sources of his extraordinary creativity. This isn't a biography. There are two perfectly good biographies out there already. Miracle and Wonder is an audio biography that sheds new light on Paul Simon's life in his own words and through his own music. You can go to MiracleAudioBook.com, enter your email and payment. You'll then receive an email and follow the easy instructions, and Miracle and Wonder will be added to your favorite podcast app. Now, I'd like to play you a chapter of Miracle and Wonder. I think you'll hear and understand why I and so many others consider him to be one of the greatest musicians and songwriters of all time.
1: You know listen to this story this is quite amazing. I took a trip on the Amazon and we stopped in this village it didn't even have any roads and there's a girl who's sitting in there and she's practicing a nylon string guitar so I listen for a while and then we say to her I say I know a South American song and I play doo, dee, doo, da, dee, dee, doo, da, dee, and she says I know an American song I say really yeah she goes
0: (laughs) (laughs) what are the odds
1: (laughs) what did you say to her there was nothing to say what am I going to say I wrote that song (laughs) in the middle middle of the Amazon it's so completely out of the realm of possibility
0: yeah That's Paul Simon talking to me and my friend and colleague, Bruce Headlam, a moment I never believed could happen. Months before, I met Paul Simon for the first time in a little Italian restaurant in Manhattan. He arrived early, no entourage, no publicist. He was wearing a Yankees cap and jeans. In person, he's unassuming, direct, funny in a slightly wry New York kind of way, youthful, It was hard to remember that he had his first hit before I was born. I'll admit, I was starstruck. I've been a fan all my life. The very first pop music I ever remember hearing was Simon & Garfunkel. It was 1970. I was seven. My family had just moved to Canada from England. We had a record player, but no records. My mother went to the public library and checked out two albums. A Peter, Paul, and Mary record that I've largely forgotten, and Bridge Over Troubled Water, which I've never forgotten. And now, 50 years later, here he was, having lunch with me. I asked him, what do you think of sitting down and having an extended conversation about your career?
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-da. You know what? I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand up.
0: He liked the idea.
1: It's going to be better. I think this is going to be a no contest, but let's just check the two guitars against each
0: other for sound. How would you describe the difference in the sound of the two guitars? How would you? I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not the guy to ask. <laughs> I enlisted my oldest friend, Bruce Headlam to help with the interviewing because Bruce knows a lot more about music than I do. And because way back when I was seven, and I first listened to Bridge Over Troubled Water, I listened to it with Bruce. It seemed like the best of karma to invite him along. what do I think? I think I think the first one I think the second one is the Martin, and the first one is your favorite guitar. Is it Gurion?
1: Yeah. And you which one did you like? One or two?
0: I prefer two. That's interesting. <laughs> it's funny. On everything you played, I preferred this. Until you, until you did the finger-picking. And then I actually preferred the martin on the finger-picking. So there were three of us. Me, more... Bruce, little... Paul.
1: Well, you know what? We'll do a take on one, and then we'll do a take on the other. and okay. we'll see.
0: We met nine times. First in Hawaii, way up in the mountains, in a tiny little studio in what used to be the fruit cellar of a ramshackle house perched on the side of a mountain.
1: I mean, look around this whole place; you'll just everything you see is like a, an odd sound. Even that little box is a cajon.
0: There was a pit bull, who greeted us enthusiastically each morning. The rumor was that Mick Fleetwood had recorded there once. When will I be loved? Can we play a little bit of When Will I Be Loved? Then, after a break of a few months, we met again in a cottage in Paul Simon's backyard, joined by his engineer, Andy Smith. Simon and Garfunkel, they kind of... We'd listen to music, and Paul would play and tell stories. Each conversation lasted four, sometimes five hours. Do the... Yeah, sure. This is a really good one. Shake it very gently, just to create a cloud. Simon turned out to have far more energy than either Bruce or I.
1: I have no anxiety about running out of ideas.
0: You don't have that at all?
1: No, I think another idea, you want another idea? Okay, here's another, here's another idea, you know?
0: I'm reminded of the line from the poet Delmore Schwartz who once drove cross country with his friend, William Phillips. William drove until I was exhausted, then I drove.
1: I never had a problem with phrasing because there's always like a metronome clicking in my head, and I know where it is, and my body usually moves to it.
0: Paul talked until we were exhausted. Then we talked. Isn't, I feel like that's your musical sensibility, is honesty on, with an undercurrent of... Am I being ridiculous? or No, think...
1: that's, that's true.
0: What follows is not a biography. It's not an A through Z account of Paul Simon's life. There are at least two very good biographies of Simon out there that will do that for you. This is a musical biography, a discussion of his songwriting, his craft, an examination of the sources of his extraordinary creativity. How do you get there?
1: How do you make yourself feel that chemical high that you feel when you make something that you like?
0: In our time with him, Paul talked about doo-wop and Queens and his dad and a million other things. What he thinks of all the different cover versions of his songs, specifically, Aretha Franklin.
1: It felt to me like it wasn't even my song. Like I gave it up for adoption or something.
0: About the countless people he's collaborated with over the years, Art Garfunkel, of course, his childhood friend, and his recording engineer, Roy Halley, who has worked with him almost from the beginning. With Paul, it's creativity adding colors where appropriate. I don't go crazy, but if I come up with a, with a really nice color,
1: he'll, nine out of ten times, love it.
0: The first part of this book is an argument about what makes Paul Simon special. When we call someone like him a musical genius, what does that mean? Can we be more specific about how experience and culture and talent and family combine to make music that endures? A big part of my thinking
1: is trial and error. It's all trial and error. And there's no reason to be
0: upset about the errors. Then, in the middle, comes the story of Graceland, maybe Simon's greatest accomplishment.
1: Part of the reason that I was able to write songs that were not overtly political was that the sound of
0: what was going on was joyful. Could that album be made today? I'm not sure. We prefer our artists these days to stay in their own cultural lane, but Simon didn't, which is a good part of what makes him such a fascinating figure. And look at what he produced. I knew
1: that I had to go to South Africa to get it right. I learned early on that you can't ask musicians to write in somebody else's handwriting.
0: The final part of the book is about later Paul Simon. The work he did in his 50s, 60s, and 70s, when most musicians of his stature have resigned themselves to leaning on their old hits. He kept going. Why? How?
1: There are times when you say, oh, don't change, I'm happy here, stay right here and having a good time. Let's just stay right here. But it's like, I'm off, nope, I'm gone to the next part.
0: Throughout the book, you'll hear from other musicians who have played with Simon over the years or just love his music. Hello. Hi, Malcolm. Renee Fleming. Hi again. Roseanne Cash. Hi How are you? Oh, hey, Malcolm. Herbie Hancock. Sting.
1: The idea of walking off to find America you know, that's redolent of Huck Finn and um, Tom Sawyer. Or
0: um, Kerouac, picaresque American novels. And then we have something special, a piece of music Paul was working on while we were talking to him for this book, a piece called The Seven Psalms, something as personal as anything Simon has ever made. But most of what follows is just Paul Simon.
1: Mrs. Robinson wasn't really folky either. Mrs. Robinson is a little snatch
0: of blues. Singing. Talking. Arguing. Teaching. That's a lick that's not too different from... See the girl with the diamond ring. At the end of every session, he would always ask, should we meet again? And we would say, yes. Over the course of these long sessions, we had the experience of sitting just a few feet from a maestro. If you've been a fan of his music, as I have, I think by the end of this book, you'll see him in a new light. But wait, you haven't given us your feelings on these two guitars with respect to this song.
1: Well, I know that this guitar is records better, you know? Yeah.
0: If you know very little about it, well, you're in for a treat.
1: Slip-sliding away Slip-sliding away You know the nearer your destination The more you're slip-sliding away Well, I know a man He came from my hometown he wore his passion for his woman like a thorny crown. He said to Lorenz, I live in fear. My love for you is so overpowering, I'm afraid that I will disappear. Slip sliding away. Slip sliding away You know the nearer your destination the more you're slip sliding away And I know one more became a wife These are the very words she uses to describe her life She said a good day well it ain't got no rain She said a bad day is when I lie in the bed And I think of things that might have been Slip sliding away Slip sliding away The more your slips sliding away And I know a father who had a son He longed to tell him all the reasons For the things he'd done He'd come a long way Just to explain Kissed his boys he lay sleeping and he turned around and he headed home again he slips lying now The information's unavailable to the mortal man We'll work our jobs Collect our pay Believe we're gliding down the highway In fact, we're slip-sliding away Slip-sliding away
0: Do you remember how the song was constructed? Can you recreate that first? Chapter one, the mystery. Mm,
1: Well, first of all, it's this kind of picking, so that tells me what time it was. Sometime between 1964 and 68, that's when I was playing this, this style, and afterwards I stopped using it so constantly.
0: Our conversations with Paul Simon usually began with a song. We would suggest one, or he would. He would talk about the song, sometimes sing a little bit of it. Or we would play the original recording, and he would break it down as we listened, like a color commentator on a football broadcast. So how would you describe that style?
1: I would call this uh, Travis Picking.
0: One of the days we met, we started with the boxer from Bridge Over Troubled Water.
1: I'm starting off as a net with a narration that could be me. I'm just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. I squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises.
0: Simon's song reconstructions were always meticulous, exacting, as if he had just written the song the day before, not half a century before.
1: I could understand beginning. I am just a poor boy, though my story seldom told. It's kind of typical of of the way I begin some songs. You know, I, I try to find a way to begin the story. Now, when I sing it, I don't sing that. I sing, I sing a mm, oh, poor boy. Story seldom told squanders his resistance. So now I'm talking about, you know, it's in the third person. Because it doesn't
0: uh, seem authentic to say I'm...
1: I can't say that I am just a poor boy. I'm not a boy and I'm not poor. So (laughs) what can I say, you know? But I could tell a story about that and people would know, of course, that it was once applicable to me. But that verse has two kind of outstanding lines. Stories seldom told, I squandered his resistance For a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises That's the first one, a Pocket Full of Mumbles is a nice idea and I think it kind of came out of uh, a Pocket Full of Marbles and maybe I said, well, there's no use to say marbles, so I'll say, oh, mumbles, oh, that's better, you know? Pocket Full of Mumbles, that's a nice you know nothing such are promises All lies and jest still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest mm-hmm. that's the really good line of the maybe the whole song Four quarters where the ragged people go looking for the places only they
0: Paul Simon is one of the two or three greatest English language songwriters of his generation, or of any generation, for that matter. And typically, when confronted with achievement on that scale, we shrug and say, oh, that person's a genius. But that word genius doesn't tell you anything, does it? It's a label, not a description. It doesn't help you understand the scope or the origin or the character of someone's accomplishment. To listen Paul Simon is to be struck by the mystery of creativity. How did he do it? And what can we learn from how he did it? Of course, he wasn't just going to tell us. We would have to listen.
1: Then I go back to uh, storytelling. When I left my home and family, I left my home and my family no more than a boy in the company of strangers. In the quiet of the railway station, running scared. So I probably wrote that song in England, if I'm saying railway station, because we say railroad. Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go. That was somewhere, because I remember that I wrote these lyrics on the back of an envelope on a plane.
0: You don't still have that envelope, I hope. Um,
1: I have that envelope.
0: Oh, you do? Well, okay. Yeah, actually.
1: Yeah. It's one of the few things that I have of when I wrote. But interestingly, I never wrote stuff down on pads or paper, you know, which I started to do later. But all of those songs are just written in my head, not written down. And even that one, I guess I was thinking about it, was sitting on a plane. Looking for the places only they would go then. La, la, la. And this is what's interesting to me. La 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 la. La 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 I always intended to write lyrics for that section. I just couldn't think of what the chorus should be. So I was just singing Lila La Lai as a space holder. But then uh, I never could think of any lyrics and I kept it. And it's so fortunate that that's what I did because when I sing that song anywhere all around the world, people sing Lila La Lai, which takes you back to a, a deep truth about songwriting, which is that we love to sing nonsensical sounds. That's just a kind of deep human pleasure to sing that. You can think of tons of songs that have that, where you just sing tour, lura, lura, or if you go way back into the English folk tradition, you know, fall, diddle, all all day, and... So La La Lai serves that purpose, and people sing along, and there's a communal atmosphere that it evokes when I'm singing it in front of a large crowd, and that is part of what makes it anthemic. When you get a lot of people singing together, it's a very powerful, very powerful feeling.
0: Time and again, we would land in the same place. After he had described the why and how and where of his songwriting, we would still be left with questions. Do you consider that a folk song?
1: Yeah, I would say it was a folky, 60s folky kind of thing. Uh, this, that kind of finger-picking, that's, uh, that's out of the folky. All of that stuff is... That would be what was the acoustic folk movement in the U.S. and in England.
0: If I had asked you when you wrote that song whether you considered yourself a folk singer, what would you have said? No. No. We're used to our creative geniuses having clear identities. Martin Scorsese is an Italian-American filmmaker from New York who has made films again and again about the intersection of those two worlds. Stevie Wonder, who is one of the few American musicians who can be said to be a true peer of Paul Simons, is a Black Motown singer, child of Detroit, Who works within the overlapping African-American traditions of R&B, funk, gospel, and jazz. In both cases, the art tells you something critical about the artist. If you listen to a Whitney Houston song or an Aretha Franklin song, you can tell with absolute certainty not just the ethnicity of the singer, but maybe even the denomination of the church they attended as a child. Because There is absolutely no question that they both emerged from the Black church. But Simon is different. He's really hard to locate sometimes. He writes one of the great folk songs of his generation. But when you ask him, did you consider yourself a folk singer, he says, no.
1: I bet he'd have been interesting. Oh, uh, he'd have been so interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So interesting. This idea, this mystery of Paul Simon's origins, goes beyond the boxer and beyond whether or not Simon falls within the folk tradition. Let me give you another example. Who, which me, it involves one of Simon's favorite saying? singers, the guy, a gospel legend the Reverend, what was his name? named Claude Jeter. Oh, Claude Jeter. The Reverend Claude Jeter. Oh, you don't know him? So
1: can you tell me a little bit Oh, about my Claude. God, you have to know him. You have to know the Swan Silvertones. Maybe I have an album here. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I have one right here. Oh, this is perfect. Did you ever hear, Oh Mary, Don't You we I've
0: heard the sign, I don't think I've heard this version.
1: Well, this is where Bridge Over Troubled Water comes oh, from. Oh, let's
0: play it. Yeah, yeah, let's play it.
1: Perfect groove. This is not Jeter yet. This is the other lead singer.
0: what the
1: You'll hear him when he comes in.
0: He said me. There he
1: is. That's cheetah. Wish I had somebody to help me call me. Yeah, mailer. deep water if you trust in my name and there it is that's a way phrase way. that's in gospel you know uh, mm-hmm. come, that comes out of the bible i'll be your bridge over deep water if you trust in my name and, oh, Lord, don't, baby, don't yeah that's on mary don't you eat
0: that's what started it all oh. listening to that record with simon was a big moment for me and bruce as paul mentioned Mary, Don't You Weep provided the spark for Bridge Over Troubled Water, the gospel masterpiece Simon wrote for Art Garfunkel.
1: But Jeter, uh, that falsetto, he's got a great, great, unique falsetto, probably the best falsetto in gospel. And uh, of course I was looking for any opportunity to do a duet with him.
0: Of course he was looking for an opportunity to collaborate with Jeter.
1: And that came up with uh, Take Me to the Mardi Gras.
0: Come on, take, me to the Mardi Gras. take Me to the Mardi Gras would become one of the signature songs on There Goes Ryman Simon, Paul's second solo album after the breakup of his partnership with Art Garfunkel. It was recorded in 1972 in a legendary R&B studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Simon wrote Mardi Gras with the Reverend Jeter in mind for the falsetto part.
1: So uh, we we got together and I showed him the part and let him sing whatever he wanted to. And then we went down to Muscle Shoals together, but flying first into uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And then there was like a two-hour car ride to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And during that time, I would ask him, you know, so what was it like on the road with a gospel quartet in the 40s into the 50s, playing in the segregated South. And uh, his stories were fantastic. You know, there should have been a biography of Reverend Jeter.
0: Paul Simon, known for chart-topping folk songs, now in Alabama with a gospel luminary. Did you ever feel, when you're sitting down with someone like Claude Jeter how does it feel when you're investigating another musical tradition? Do you feel awkward? Do you feel,
1: I mean, what's the kind of emotion? Well, I'm not, in my mind, investigating a musical tradition. I'm, I don't think that way. In my mind, I'm talking to an artist who I really admire and respect. You have to keep in mind that I'm. my father was a musician and I was raised in a house where there was always musicians around, and there was always great respect for musicians. So I felt a kind of a comfort. Didn't really feel awkward, but a, a little sense
0: of awe. Did you go to Muscle Shoals deliberately seeking to shake up your sound?
1: No, I don't go to shake up. I go to where I, what, what I'm interested in and where I want to play. I don't think that way. I'm going to shake up my sound. I got to do this for a change. I'm going. To, I don't. I really don't think that way.
0: Notice how Simon corrects me there twice. He wasn't investigating another musical tradition because it didn't feel like another musical tradition to him, and he wasn't deliberately trying to shake up his sound. He was just following his ear. Simon wanted to record in Muscle Shoals because he had heard a number of songs produced there. Like the Staples Singers classic, I'll Take You There. Uh,
1: Muscle Shoals studio was fantastic because it was an old warehouse for gravestones. It was like a cemetery place. So
0: Southern Gothic, it's fantastic.
1: (laughs) And uh, yeah, and the bathroom was like right in the studio. So if you had to use the bathroom, well, you couldn't do a take or anything because it was like flushing and it was right there in the studio also the thing that was great about them was that that was their studio that was their sound you'd come in they'd flick on the switch and they were ready to go it wasn't like we got to do an hour of uh, getting the drum sound they had it they had all their sounds you know the, everything was mic'd properly everything was amped and you got the muscle sound.
0: But Simon wanted more than to just replicate the Muscle Shoals sound.
1: I did use a a, a New Orleans band, the Onward Brass Band.
0: Alabama, gospel, the Muscle Shoals sound, and a New Orleans brass band.
1: They came up from New Orleans, and in order to get them, we drove to Jackson, Mississippi, and went to Malico Sound, which is like one of the really great anecdotes. Driving there... We stop at a gas station. We say we were lost, you know. Uh, Do you know where Malico Sound is? We say to the gas station guy. He says, I'll tell you what. You take that third road, go about two miles up, come to a golf field. You go past there about a mile and a half. You make a U-turn, you come back, and then you make a right turn. Then it's right there. So then we said, well, why can't we just make a left turn when we come to the golf field? Uh
0: He
1: said, well, you could do that, too. (laughs) (laughs) I've been saying that ever since. Well, you could do that, too.
0: Can you see now why Paul Simon is so hard to locate? A Jewish songwriter from New York City, who at that point in the early 1970s is one of the three or four most famous musicians in the world. Drives from Huntsville to Muscle Shoals, Alabama with Claude Jeter, an ordained minister and black gospel legend, to record a song with a group of acclaimed R&B musicians and a New Orleans brass band.
1: It's Barry Beckett.
0: And what's the song? Take Me to the Mardi Gras. Come on! which, by the way, has a Jamaican reggae guitar group.
1: That's uh, Jimmy Johnson. It's like Jamaican, you know?
0: Five separate traditions colliding
1: effortlessly.
0: Musicians, all the time, borrow from each other and from different traditions, of course. The Rolling Stones began life as a bunch of suburban English kids imitating the American blues. Janice Joplin was not a product of the Mississippi Delta. She was the daughter of an oil and gas engineer from Texas. But with Paul Simon, five traditions, layered one on top of each other, New York City Jewish, Jamaican reggae, New Orleans brass band, Harlem gospel, and Alabama R&B. That was the Paul Simon mystery that we started with.
1: Here comes Jeter.
0: that no, he's the, the great
1: falsetto singer in the gospel quartets. Mm-hmm. That's like what he always said, you know, I never
0: pretended to be anything other than falsetto.. By the standards we use today to judge authenticity in an artist, that they are true to their identity and tradition. Paul Simon is inauthentic. But how can that be? How do you become one of the most beloved and influential songwriters of your generation if you appear inauthentic? That's the question we'll get to in the next chapter.
1: Very sweet record, with incredible talented people in there. Muscle Shows Band, a real brass band of, you know, I mean, those are old cats from New Orleans. They weren't kids. Do
0: you think Claude Jeter thought of you?
1: Um, I think he thought of me as, as a good guy. And as I said, you know, there was always this rumor that I was going to, which I didn't know of, <laughs> that I was going to give him a Cadillac yeah. at uh, this church up in Harlem. But I didn't know that know about the oh, rumor. Otherwise, I would have given such
0: a it. lost opportunity. You could have absolutely. rolled up in some.
1: Oh, absolutely. I really wish I had. I wish I could <laughs> could go back in time and do that.
0: Thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new audiobook, Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon. You can hear the full book at miracleaudiobook.com.